We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Twenty twenty has so far been a freakishly dramatic time in Australia. Before coronavirus dominated the way we live and work, the country was battling an intense bushfire season that has been unmatched in living memory. The building regulatory system can take a long time to catch up when things change in the construction industry, and this is very true for the provision of bushfire protection in Australian standards. Architects in Australia are working to mitigate the devastating effects of bushfires on people and their properties, as this growing seasonal risk impacts our natural landscape. I'm Daniel Moore, and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we're talking to Katarina Hendel, Kim Irons and Ian Weir about designing in bushfire areas and what architects can do to provide support for communities before and after they're affected by bushfires. When you live in Australia, you learn pretty quickly that the bushfire season is serious. This is especially true in areas that are built next to our native eucalyptus forests. Our first guest today is the director of TACT studio, Katarina Hendel, whose practice does a lot of residential work on New South Wales' south coast. TACT started their practice on a family project near Lake Conjola, which was ravaged during the Black Summer fires. Katrina, thanks for joining us. So with regards to your previously completed projects, which of your projects were affected by the recent bushfires? We actually did one um, in Milton, um, which is near Conjola, which was also pretty heavily affected the surroundings of it. Um, and that was a project that we didn't just design, we actually built it as well, because we we have a, um, a small, uh, a modular built design company um, as well. Um, joint modular is what that's called. So we've that was a, a house that um, we had designed and built, so we were particularly interested in how that had fared. And we knew the area there um, was heavily affected by fire. Um, from what we know, the fire went through three times. Um, however, the, the advantage wow. was that it was relatively accessible um, and fire brigade was present most of the time from what we know. So we went to have a look at that and um, I think... We got incredibly lucky, but um, it it was re- it really showed that in that case, um, it the rating of that particular building wasn't actually that high. However, it was designed so it would um, sit in a particular way against the hill, it sort of tucked into the hillside, and um, particularly on the side that was facing the forest, it had no roof overhangs and it was is very low on that side. Um, and the owners had also cleaned the site very carefully before they left and um, evacuated. So they cleaned out the whole um, under floor and um, subfloor of the building. And um, the fire went through directly. We could see that um, all the vegetation was gone um, around it. There was not even a bit of lawn left. Um, but the house itself was pretty much unscathed. Um, we had one singed column. <laughs> But that was it. And that was timber construction and the hardwood windows and doors. Right. And what was the cladding on that building? Um, that was also timber. Oh, right. Oh. And was that a fire rated or class one timber? No, it wasn't. Um, it was a, um, what's it called? It's the, the ply, it's a ply cladding, um, a groove ply cladding. Oh. So um, painted. But um, yeah, the, and I think that, that goes to show 
that the design it has to go further than just a material placement um, that building wasn't set up to have fire go straight through it um, because it, it was on a relatively big site with a reasonable AP set um, and the fact okay, how... Okay, so just for our listeners at, at home, what is an APZ? Oh, sorry, it's a, the asset protection zone. It's a managed part of the land around it um, where it's um, usually that it's cleared of not all vegetation, but vegetation that where crowns connect of trees to each other. So you can still have some trees in your asset protection zone, but not the whole forest. And so it's it's a managed right. part of your land. And in that, in that case, that was relatively generous. Um, there was a bit of distance to the denser forest behind it. And it was really the, the, um, the orientation of the home and how the roof plane um, located itself against the land um, that protected it in the end of, at the end of the day, not the material. Because the, the issue was that I think um, because the fire could just go underneath it and there was only very low vegetation, basically lawn, and they had cleared out all leaf litter before they left, um, there was no large um, outbreak of fire around the house, which means there was never enough heat to actually set the cladding or windows and doors alight. Right. So does that mean that clearing around your house all of the loose debris and flammable materials around your house can make a huge difference? Yeah, a huge so difference. And it's also um, removing any other things. Um, as in um, barbecues, um, gas bottles, um, furniture, they had put that all away and inside the house. And, and those other things that can make a great difference. And then obviously there's a bit of luck in that as well. Um, we have heard from the neighbours that the fire went straight over the, the top of the house. So there was actually okay. a fireball that went over the roof and set the trees on the other side of the light, which were about 20 metres away. Um, so it was pretty significant impact, but wow. the the existing building materials, even timbers, um, now the windows and doors were hardwood windows and doors. Um, they are actually fairly resistant for a limited amount of time. So if you can prevent things burning next to it, then you, you've that's half the battle. And we had very carefully sealed all um, cavities that had been done. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, far out. So I guess if anyone is thinking about designing a house or having a house designed for them by you or someone else in a bushfire area, what would be your advice to those people before they engage an architect? I think um, there's there's even in a flame zone rating, I would advise people against thinking of their house as a bunker or safe place to stay. I think when direct fire or intense fire, as we've seen this summer, um, which were, you know, in, in Conjola, that was really not something that anyone expected, how quickly this would move, how hot it would be. Um, it's The, the forest is just devastated, uh, more so than in some other areas we've seen. Um, and it, it's a long time until something will come back there because of the intensity of the fire. And even a flames on house, I would not say that that would have saved you or the house potentially. So I think um, the first thing is to tell people that it is an insurance policy and the hope that a house will survive to a degree. Um, that doesn't mean it doesn't get damaged and certainly doesn't mean you should plan to shelter in place. Yeah, far out. So I guess um, if anyone is thinking about designing a house or having a house designed for them by you or someone else in a bushfire area, what would be your advice to those people before they engage an architect? 
Well, look, um, I think the approach should always be a, a holistic approach on the look at the site first, look at the boundaries, what happens around you, what are your neighbours doing? In an ideal world, particularly at Conjola, I'm hoping that people will work together when they rebuild um, next to each other, because I think um, what your neighbours do has a great impact on, on the fire resilience of your own property. So that's something to look at. And I think it's um, it's really important to consider everything from the landscaping to the house, to the ma- how you maintain, how you're able to maintain the landscaping for starters, um, to, to look at all those elements together. And that's what will give you the greatest protection. That includes things like escape routes and shelter spots to shelter um water supply it's it's a very complex um process so that's why i do recommend um in areas that are particularly fire prone to engage an architect to manage that process because it requires a number of consultants usually and an input from from quite a few people to get to a successful result and for anyone who's uh thinking about you know, making a tree change from the city to a bushfire area or to the country, uh, and they're thinking about employing an architect from the city to design for them in the country. Do you have any advice for them before they undertake that process? Look, I, to be honest, I do recommend that people who uh, want to engage an architect that they first look at their local area and their local architects. Um, that's my first recommendation. And because I think um, that's people who are familiar with the with the conditions, with the surroundings, and it will give you um, hopefully a, a more a more specific result to to what's important for that particular area. But um, exactly. if you're working with an architect who's who's out of the area, I think um, it it's in it's the responsibility of the architect to to come there to spend some time to understand um, the local conditions. And in terms of fire resilience, um, there's a lot of information out there online. It's just, um, there's a lot of pages now who are trying to collate that. Um, that's The difficulty is not a lack of information, but um, finding it all on spot. <laughs> that's such great advice. There's so much that the regional architects in bushfire areas or anywhere out in regional Australia know about their specific area and they can help clients out in that area because they know it so well. And for any architects who are about to undertake some of this work in those areas, uh, what's some advice that you can give to architects before they start working on projects in areas where they've been devastated by horrendous bushfires? Uh, It's critical that um, any of those projects, because particularly if you're rebuilding in an area that has been affected by bushfires, there is usually not just one house affected. It's usually an effect on the whole community. And there's trauma in that community. And so I think it is important to consider each project as part of a whole rather than as a single project um, and to to work together with A, the community and try to pull in other people and try to coordinate between people. And I think as architects, we're particularly well set up as being able to do that because it is our job to coordinate many stakeholders for any project, really. Um, and in those communities, I think it's particularly critical that we that we bring everyone together and look further than just um, the single project we might be presented with to look at community infrastructure. How does the new home relate to community? How can we help not just the owners, but help everyone with the small things that we can do that, that have to do with public space, with street frontages um, that will make um, the whole overall better? 
um, which then means if there's a multiple of architects involved in, in one area, um, it would make sense to work together on those things and try to find some common denominators that create community again, because those communities, they've, they've lost a lot and they have lost often um, as much in the initial stages as they've come together as communities, as people then have to move away because they have temporary accommodation elsewhere. They're losing some of the sense of community and a rebuild should always include bringing that back to people. So at Conjola, for example, we're looking at master plan at the moment, um, trying to look at some of the infrastructure issues that they've had. The fact that Conjola Park and Conjola, Lake Conjola are fairly disconnected. There's, there's a road, but there's no way for pedestrians or cyclists safely to um, go between, which was a safety issue as the fires came through. Um, they also had less um, infrastructure in Conjola Park, particularly in terms of public amenities, um, emergency meeting areas, playgrounds and so on. So we're looking at, at some of those things that, that then can help build community, um, which makes every single part of it stronger as a whole. Wow, it's such great advice. Uh, thank you so much, Katerina Handel, for joining us. It's great to see that you're working on such fantastic buildings out in those areas and uh, not only building buildings, but uh, helping to build communities. So if anyone is interested in working with you or getting some advice from you, should they just uh, send you an email and get in contact at uh, Tact Studio? Yeah, definitely. All right, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So just like what we've heard then from Katrina, after fires have been through a community, it not only takes building with bricks and mortar, but knowledge and community building to help people get through it. Our next guest is Kim Irons from Irons Macduff Architects based in Geelong. Kim was a member of the CFA during the King Lake fires in 2009 and saw firsthand what people were dealing with when they were facing the loss of their homes. The process of rebuilding was so mystifying to many people that Kim started talking in communities so people could understand what could happen next. So Kim, uh, what council did you start working with first to help the people affected by fire? Um, Well, thanks for having me. Whittlesea Council was really proactive in that they organised like an open day where they had a whole lot of suppliers and builders and potentially design teams. I think there may have been one other architect there all there to sort of offer some sort of assistance and provide guidance to people. And and I think particularly a whole lot of discussion about fire resistance. Right. So this wasn't people turning up to have a fancy architecturally designed home. This was something quite different. Yeah, it was definitely something else. It was um, definitely a sense of people looking to some people looking to new ideas but definitely most people were looking at what do I do what do I need where do I start if I want to build something bushfire resistant what does that involve I mean down to tank supplies how big were the tanks and how much were they going to cost them in order to have those around them and to have them ready to fight fires in the future right some conversations about bunkers right but uh, mainly a lot of really practical yes really practical yeah. So when you started to talk to people in the community after they'd lost their homes, um, did you have to explain to them what the whole process was going to be? And was there some sort of misunderstanding about how the process was going to work, I guess? Did everyone think it was going to be quite straightforward? Yeah, I, th- I think there was a bit of that it'll just be straightforward. I think they were starting to become aware of that councils were going to work very hard to sort out the planning for them. 
that they were also helped by the Victorian Bushfire Reconstruction Recovery Authority, I think it was called. They provided a service for free bowel assessments. And just for some of the people at home, what does the bowel stand for in a bowel assessment? Bushfire attack level assessment. So this was the new Australian Standard 3959 coming in um, and they were going to be requiring that everybody changes their construction to this sort of methodology. Again, going back to that first point that originally the uh, the Australian Standard was really talking about ember attack. This new one was bringing in a whole lot more about flame and heat and the impact of that, so far more dramatic. Right. And that was a result of the Canberra fires that they were implementing that. Right, and this is also... Uh, not just a standard that stands alone. This is actually a standard that's referenced in the Building Code of Australia? It is now referenced in the Building Code, yeah. And it's particularly referenced through the planning system now as well. So that it's also shifted a gear for many areas. I think it was two or three years ago that shifted and became mandatory in some areas. So, look, I think they did start to see some complexity in what was about to happen. I think, you know, clearing of land, the complexity also that they needed new tanks, you know, some people had to completely go through new septic systems where they wouldn't have been able, they wouldn't have needed to bother in the past. Now they needed to look at completely new treatment systems because now they were getting a new permit. Um, so there were there were things like that that were the sort of small necessary evils that were holding them up. But, I mean, I think the other thing that um, the big holdup for most people was, was the emotion and the trauma and that people weren't necessarily ready to rebuild and they may have inquired, they may have been at Whittlesea that day, but they certainly, most of them, would not have started to think about it for six months. They had other things to deal with. They had lots of kids and emotions to deal with, trauma, grief. And it's the same this time. There'll be a lot of trauma and grief and trying to keep everybody mentally safe and and, um, keep their mental health and wellbeing together. Right. Will be the focus. So it seems like through this process, you had to give advice and support that was beyond a standard architectural service. I mean, architects are often giving advice about the process of design or the process of building, whereas here you had to give some some help in terms of how people were dealing with grief. Yeah, and I think that's why I was trying to be really clear to everybody that you um, you really need to listen. Um, and um, and empathise and, and wait for people to come and ask for advice. And I think it's really important we're not being seen to walk in with solutions, walk in with designs, say we've got the problem solved um, because one needs to be careful that people are going through various transitions of grief. Yeah. And were there some people who had to go through some sort of shock when they actually went through the insurance claim process? Yeah, there was definitely the financial implications. Um, I think um, certainly I was meeting clients who were insured for a certain sum, um, getting quoted so much to rebuild their house because many people wanted to just rebuild. Um, And they were getting... Um, cost that was sort of 50% in excess of what they're insured for. Is that 50% of the entire property? Of the entire insurance. So one couple were $400,000, but the quotes they had were $600,000 to rebuild. So they were going to be $200,000 out of pocket if they um, were going down that path. And I think that's very common. And I think the other thing is, of course, like I said, the infrastructure costs that can also come with all of this. I mean, 
Are you insured for clearing of the land? Are you insured for additional services that may require upgrading? Fences are a big one, um, particularly in rural areas. Uh, So, you know, tanks and things, are they associated as well? And then, of course, layering on that, that particularly in 2009 and, and probably today as well for most of the houses that have gone, is that um, even if that house was worth $400,000 then, it now needs to be upgraded to deal with the new bushfire attack level assessment. So, Wow, so how did that play out when you were meeting with people and providing some architectural advice? Were there other consultants there as well so that they could help illustrate uh, any of the additional costs that it now takes to build a home that might be more fire resilient? Not in those cases. When we did the... um, We we were involved with the Office of Victorian Government Architects Initiative for um, the Bushfire Home Service. So there are a series of architects out there that put together... um, I think we had two weeks to submit and we put in submissions of something that would suit various bushfire attack level assessments. And I... My, yeah, we were all required to try and get to 40, to bell 40, which is the second highest category. So there's flame zone and then there's um, bushfire attack level 40, which is the second highest at present. So what are the standouts in bell 40 that you need to include uh, in your house? Well, it's um, aluminium windows or extremely fire-resistant timber windows with 5 mil toughened glass. Um, all the structure has to be completely concealed, all the subfloor has to be concealed, which is kind of interesting in areas with um, changing terrains. Um, Roofs have to be sealed, Uh, materials have to be fire resistant, all the external materials have to be fire resistant. And then if you don't have that um, compliance with your windows, then your windows need to have fire shutters over them. So they're sort of the main ones, but it starts to get into a much heavier, robust sort of construction. So we all um, put those in. And the great thing about that, while um, we didn't necessarily have structural engineering resolved on ours or any other consultants, certainly the OVGA had them priced by one of the quantity surveyors. And that was really useful, I think, to understand where they stood in terms of costs. Oh, so the Office of the Victorian Government Architect brought in building surveyors to price... To To price the various houses that we'd put forward which was a nice sort of independence. And I think that may have helped people. But I think also what was interesting about those designs was um, for the most part we had all done something a little bit different, certainly not traditional rural vernacular. So I, I wonder sometimes if that was what people were comfortable with and, again, going back to many wanting to just rebuild what they had. Um that sense of familiarity wasn't quite there for them. But I think also the big issue there was possibly that it was almost that fly-in, fly-out or top-down approach where here you are, here's our free designs, feel free to call us, but many people aren't just going to call you off the bat about that. So they were great designs and I think really worthwhile pursuing. Some that were underground were um, had some interest for people. Um, we had a couple of people start, but then they would say, actually, we're leaving altogether. So it wasn't so much the design as it was just they were leaving. They weren't wanting to stay in those areas. So I guess that's something that people have to assess after they go through a situation like this where yeah. they might not want to live in an area that is so severe in terms of bushfire uh, risk. Yeah, and I think you know sometimes the communities break down, other people leave, so people leave, you know, more people leave. 
one couple in Churchill just decided that perhaps they just need to leave and be closer to their children and their grandchildren. You know, so there's various personal reasons that people leave as well. But I think, um, I think, I guess one of the things when you're doing pro bono work is that I'm learning very quickly is that it does actually help to have an entire team, not just the architect coming in as designer, because I think then you can provide the whole picture um, immediately, and and you can start to provide answers when they're asked more immediately. And and I think perhaps there's a solution there of linking with builders. I'm not sure yet but um, but that's certainly where people go from what I understand and I'm hearing it now there builders in Malakota and Bruthen are being approached um, and we understand that there's a, a builder in Malakota who's now finding architects and or people he knows to say can you find me some architects who can help because he's feeling overwhelmed so I think if we can do it more as an initiative, as a sort of collective of um, consultants and professionals, it might help people better than we did last time. Mm. Right. So now that you've been through this process of speaking to entire communities uh, about dealing with the aftermath of going through a bushfire, if there's any advice that you've had to repeat over and over again, what advice would you give to people if they're going to build a home in a bushfire area and what should they consider before they actually get started? I think just be very aware of the country you're on. And let's face it, if you've bought in those sorts of areas, it's nice to keep the vegetation and the place as it was or as it is when you first arrived because obviously there's something appealing about that. And I think there's a lot about caring for country that we need to consider in all of this as well. But I think, um, you know, certainly to engage an architect is is a much more holistic approach in terms of any approach to rebuilding or adaptation, etc. will be integrated in the design rather than it's just a standard design and then it's layering. And there are certain moves that we can make to keep the costs down. I think, yeah, just be very aware that you might be designing a bunker that opens as opposed to an open house that needs to be closed. Um, and I guess the other aspect is, like, certainly leave. Don't stay. Um, we can build fire-resistant dwellings and buildings, but we can't necessarily defend people against what we've just seen in this fire, and certainly what we saw in 2009. And I guess that was the thing that struck me being on the ground in 2009 was I could see what people were describing as fireballs. I could see the aftermath of the fireballs, and, and I don't really feel that, the, even the current standards will help withstand that. They might give you some temporary protection depending on the nature of the fire but some of what we've seen in the last year is please leave and especially if you're not a country person who understands how it all works, please leave. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, thank you Kim so much for sharing all of your amazing experience and hopefully these communities are all rebuilding after all this horrible stuff that they've gone through so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Kim Irons from Irons McDuff, based in Victoria. So, Katrina and Kim both mentioned the Australian standards for bushfires that buildings need to meet. Our next guest is Ian Weir, who is an architect with over 25 years of experience specialising in bushfire design based in Queensland, who also helped write the latest version of the Australian standards for bushfires. So, Ian, uh, what were some of the flaws in the standard that required some correction? Well, um, it was very ambiguous regarding um, bushfire attack level assessments. 
I was conducting them myself. Um, I was commissioning them by other so-called experts and I was commissioning them or, or viewing them from accredited professionals. And I saw just an incredible um, disparity in the assessments, uh, in the result, you know, uh, whether it was Flame Zone or Bell 40 or Bell 29, just incredible variation. And I thought, well, this, what's, what's happening with this, vari- this um, variability? You know, this is, this is obviously a problem with the, uh, with the assessment. So that aspect of the standard, I saw some, as I say, ambiguities. The so what were some of those ambiguities, uh, just for the people at home, you know, just to explain how this document can be so ambiguous for something so important? Well, the, the standard used to say, um, choose the worst case vegetation type. So that means that even if you've got 90% of just grassland, you know, mowed by your sheep, within 100 metres of your house, if you had a few trees within that 90%, that was what the standard inferred, that you actually chose the trees as the, as the worst case scenario vegetation type. So you're getting houses that are rated flame zone. And I'm going, hang on a minute. <laughs> like, wow. If you just draw a map, yeah. this makes no sense whatsoever. So um, now the standard says, do a bushfire attack level assessment for every vegetation type and choose the worst bell. Right, choose whichever one of those gives the, gives the highest bell. And so if the trees are within a few metres of the house, they might indeed give the highest bushfire attack level. Um, but if the, if the trees are 90 metres from the house, it's the grass that's going to give the highest bushfire attack level, which is going to be very low, of course. So this is, uh, this is how people were interpreting it. I would have bushfire assessors, people with years of experience, coming to my sites and saying, Ian, we've got to call all this forest. And I'm going, you can't be serious. We're standing in heath. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Um, so I thought, well, hang on, what, what is going on here? Uh, and it turned out, you know, to solve that issue was really um, about, you know, semantics and, and uh, good um, grammar uh, and, uh, and kind of the design of the, of the wording and the flow of the wording rather than having some all-in argument about, you know, what is best. And the reason um, why that ambiguity stayed in the standard is, again, there were very few people on the committee that actually were, you know, uh, having that skin-in-the-game experience of actually delivering delivering houses and dealing with bushfire attack Right, so with all of those problems that existed in the standard, what was the ultimate result that we were getting in our houses? Ultimately, the problem was is that uh, houses were built to a much higher standard, let's say higher cost than what they needed to be. Um, That was the problem with that ambiguity. The other significant problem I saw, um, which wasn't an ambiguity, was actually effectively written into the previous standard before the 2018 standard, and that is that bell assessors were measuring to the outside extent of trees, meaning the drip line of a tree, right? So a tree can be 40 metres high and its canopy can be 20 to 30 metres in diameter. So... uh, and the canopy is not uh, a contributor to the fuel in a fire front. We're not designing for that fuel. So, uh, so I, my main, uh, I guess, claim to fame, not so much fame, but uh, something I'm very happy with, is that I had added to the, to the now current standard a very simple diagram that says, now we measure to the unmanaged fuel. We don't measure to the ex- outside extent of a tree. And what this means is that a bell assessment can't be done from an aerial photograph, for example. 
it has to be done on the ground. Now, they had to have always been done on the ground, but there were a lot of shortcuts being taken because people assumed you measured to the outside extent of a tree. Now, again, you could have a flame zone house measured that way that could suddenly drop to Bell 29 easily when you're actually considering that, hang on, the fuel is managed to the fence line rather than to the canopy of the tree. So, um, Right, so it sounds like this aligns with what we were hearing from some of the other experts during the bushfires where the properties that were extremely well-maintained had actually helped uh, prevent fires from moving from property to property. Absolutely, and of course, you know, the more trees around the house, the better um, from a bushfire uh, um, resilience point of view. Because uh, you know, we wow, know, really? Yes, I know it's kind of a, a it's a paradox, but the more trees, the better. And um, and I've been encouraging the CSIRO to give us some you know empirical evidence on that. Um, the the head researchers in this field within the CSIRO are have got anecdotal evidence, but we need the empirical evidence to give some pushback on on all this clearing of trees around houses. Wow. So in all of your years of experience, have you witnessed something that uh, is some sort of uh, evidence that having trees is better for a property? Well, I've, I've found that uh, well, a lot of the trees that I've found that have been burnt um, in bushfires around houses have actually been burnt by the house. And uh, this is, I guess, a key, a key thing that uh, listeners to this podcast need to consider is when they view some of these really quite compelling um, and seductive images of houses raised to the ground with the molten aluminium kind of, you know, running down the hill towards the photographer, that is not a bushfire. It's not a bushfire. That's a structural fire. A structural fire is going for hours, two to 3,000 degrees, you know, Celsius. A bushfire, 1,200 degrees C, a couple of minutes. So... The house, no doubt, has been... The, the structural fire of the house has no doubt been triggered by the bushfire. You know, we can't deny that. Um, but it's that long duration and high-intensity heat of the house that's actually ignited the trees around it. I've seen this in many photos. I've seen it firsthand when I've gone to fire grounds immediately after fires. So it's just one example of where we can get... Um, you know, there's a kind of a, a myth that is... Um, you know, emboldened by our mis- misreading of photographs that we see, particularly in the media. So we need to be really attentive to how we're actually reading, um, particularly, you know, those, you know, media kind of photographs, which are there, you know, to compel us and to get us to read the story. So um, so, that, so that's one of the first things. We, we just need to go, well, hang on a minute. What are our preconceptions in this, in this space? Um, how did we get these preconceptions? A lot of it comes from imagery. Um, and, and now let's look at the objective science. There's been, there is absolutely no statistical evidence of any house in Australia being lost from a fire in the canopy of trees. None, right? Now, on the other side of the evidence, we know that um, around 85% of houses are burnt down within 100 metres of bushland. Okay, so we've got two completely opposite statistics there, and we have to find in our mind, we have to reconcile those two completely disparate 
um, you know, almost a dichotomy of kind of statistics. Most houses are burnt down 100 metres from bushland, but no houses are burnt down from the canopy of trees. Now, okay, so to, to answer that question, houses, most houses are burnt down from ember attack, not from direct flames anyway. Embers can come, of course, from the immediate landscape. They can also come from 20 or 30 kilometres away. They can be a little spark and they can be a massive projectile the size of your hand. They can be a big piece of bark. They can be a pine cone and so on. So, of course, trees do contribute to embers, but the canopy itself is not the problem. So houses are lost through ember attack and they can come from a long way away. Um, and what what is happening is the combustible elements of houses and their immediate landscape is igniting. So decks, verandas, retaining walls, timber fences, all of that timber stuff. It doesn't matter what timber it is, it's combustible. It's combustible. So the other aspect is the embers, of course, will get in gaps and where, the, where you can't see even if you're trying to defend your house. And then you've got the problem of fires igniting within the internal space of the house so getting back to the issue of trees and canopy and where our bowels where we measure our bushfire attack levels to we need to be talking the unmanaged fuel and fuel a simple definition of fuel is kind of anything less than six millimeters in diameter if it's a twig and then everything like leaves and uh, and garden mulch um, bark and all of that stuff is within that that category. There's a sort of a taxonomy of of um, of fuel types which are in the available fuel category for a fire front because that's what we're designing for as architects, the fire front. We're not designing for a two-hour fire. Wow, that's a lot to take in. Uh, but I think with all of this specialised uh, knowledge that you now have, you've been able to attract some really interesting clients and one of those included an actual fiery and his wife so would you better tell us about that project well um the husband professional firefighter 30 years um in the profession and the full gamut of professional firefighting in a regional area um kind of stories that you don't want to hear and uh his wife um the head of the emergency department at the local regional hospital okay so incredible couple that know what emergencies look like um, and for the husband, one of those incredible, um, super cool in an emergency characters. And you know them when you meet them. They're just beyond, you know, what most people are like. Uh, certainly different to myself. Um, so these are people that really knew the full spectrum. They knew that a house could be built for fire. Unlike a lot of our fellow architects, I meet so many architects that just simply don't believe that a house can be built for fire. These guys thought right. it's a no-brainer. It's really easy. Just make it non-combustible. They're already, they've been to house fires. You know, the husband, you know, they know this stuff, right? So that's that's one aspect. They knew that it could be done and they knew they didn't have to annihilate their amazing property. So they bought, this is a permanent resident, not a residence, not a holiday home. Um, they bought a house in a heavily forested site north facing on a steep site really bushfire prone one of the most bushfire prone areas in australia so on the very south coast of wa um, denmark just around from albany um, kind of tim winton country if you like and um, the uh, eucalyptus diversicolor the carry trees are really tall there's a lot of fuel on the ground 
Um, so they wanted to build a high bow level house because they wanted to conserve their landscape. Now I meet a lot of architects that um, are building high bow houses, particularly in New South Wales, Greater Sydney region, uh, region and the Blue Mountains. And they're doing it because they're told to by the New South Wales Rural Fire Service. Now, generally, I work with clients that want to. It's a different, it's a different client. They actually want to conserve the landscape and they really want to push the bell level and understanding that it might cost a little more. Um, and, and so that's a really interesting client. That's my kind of client. Somebody that's doing it because they want to, not because they have to. So we're not talking about ticking the boxes. We're talking about a meaningful response to fire and to biodiversity conservation. So the, the third aspect um, was they, they had a bushfire plan to start with. And this is something I always talk to my clients or anybody that contacts me in my role as an academic, uh, just seeking advice. I say, well, what is your fire plan? Can you visualize or have you been in the fire? What are you going to do in that event? Are we designing a house that you just have, you're just going to lock down and then just get out of there before a fire, which is the ideal scenario. When the fire danger index gets high, let's just go and be somewhere else. Let's not even wait for a fire. Are you going to wait for a fire and then act? Are you going to take refuge in the house? Is this a really remote spot? Is the safest thing to do take, to take refuge in the house? I've worked for all of those different clients. So when people come to you and they want to push the boundaries a little bit, do they expect to have a bunker designed for them or something else? A lot of people um, would be hoping for that, um, commissioning an architect, designing a house to Australian Standard 3959, not realising that that standard is not about that at all. It's not about protecting residents for a long period of time. Um, it is about protecting residents, but it's not about the building being able to s- survive a bushfire. It's about the building being able to give just enough protection during a fire front that if people are, have chosen or they're unlucky enough to need a refuge just for that few minutes, then the house would provide that but don't expect the house to not, not burn down. That's what the Australian standard is about. It's about giving you a lag period so that if you're unlucky enough or you have decided that's your plan, the landscape is going, the fuel is going to be out of the landscape when the house is burning down and you can evacuate into that now safer landscape. It's a very, very misunderstood aspect of the standard. So, um, so getting back to these clients uh, at the Carry Firehouse in, in southern WA, they decided at the very outset that he was going to stay and defend the house and she was going to evacuate. And that makes perfect, makes perfect sense. So it's kind of like a balance. She's going to take the, the valuables. She's already got that planned. He's going to stay with the house. And they've got extra... Um, you know, things which are pretty common now, sprinkler systems and petrol pumps and all that kind of stuff for that emergency. So, so that's the kind of the aspects. They, they knew they could build a house to the bell level, to a high bell level. They knew that houses could survive a fire, you know, you know in, in principle. Uh, they wanted to conserve their vegetation and they had a fire plan right at the start. Right. So when you're saying that they could survive the fire in principle, was the idea that the husband would stay behind and fight the fire 
and the house would be completely intact or was the idea that the house would survive the fire but certain elements would be sacrificial and would could be replaced after the fire had passed and all of the all of the hazard had gone look that's a that's a great question daniel because uh in this case yes but many of the architects i talk to and also talk to building certifiers as well and i'm talking about giving you know professional development talks for example so large groups of architects very few of them realize that uh, most of the elements that have passed certain standards to comply with AS3959 are sacrificial in a bushfire. So bell flame zone shutters, for example, would be pretty much a one use only. So yes, in this case, there's insulation underneath the slab. Most of that would be destroyed. Um, the, um, the screens that protect the glazing, that would all have to be replaced. Um, so certainly, um, yeah. So when I sign a contract with, uh, with clients, I use the same disclaimer that it's actually in AS3959. I say, this, we're designing this to, because they're commissioning me as a so-called bushfire architect. They're expecting me to have expert knowledge in this. I say to them, look, we'll do, we will surpass the Australian standard. The Australian standard has a, has a baseline um, and this is its own disclaimer. So we're going to, you know, we're not guaranteeing the house is going to survive. So we're not actually building a bunker. Bunkers are rated to say a two-hour fire, a fire uh, event. So, um, so yeah, it's a, these are very important kind of, um, I guess, uh, aspects of the communication that needs to happen between, you know, the architect and the client. Right. I guess there are a lot of people who probably want to design to exactly to the letter of the Australian standard for bushfires. Um, what do you think that architects should be doing uh, to help? get beyond just what the minimum requirements are in these Australian standards? Well, uh, I guess the first thing is um, ensure that they're commissioning a bona fide, legitimate, professional standard bushfire attack level assessment. And, you know, there is a professional accrediting body, the Fire Protection Association of Australia, and we have the BPAD scheme, Bushfire Planning and Design Scheme. Um, Some states don't require that. Queensland doesn't require an accredited um, professional. Um, so that, that is the first thing. There will be some architects listening to this uh, and building designers that have gone through that scheme. And, you know, that's really good training to have. Um, in the very least, get a copy of the Australian Standard. Get a copy of it. It's only $120 or so. And it just de- demystifies the whole process. You can do a bell assessment yourself. It's a really simple process now that we've you know, changed some of those ambiguities. Um, get the 2018 version and actually go through the steps yourself. It's really straightforward. It's really, really straightforward. So don't be passive to this and encourage your clients to not be passive to this process as well. Encourage them to do the bell assessment. This is one of the key bits of advice I give um, the people that have been contacting me that have just recently lost their homes, is let's sort out the bell assessment. Let's actually understand what's happening here. The second thing is, is really push for a higher bell level rather than a lower one. The lower bell level that, that architects are trying to build to, effectively what they're doing is putting more emphasis on the clients to passively manage their bushfire risk forever meaning they've got to be constantly maintaining their landscape. The higher a bushfire attack level that the house is, 
the house is going to be maintained because it has to function. It just has to function. It's got to work, you know. Otherwise, you know, it's it's not a house. You know, it has to work. So, so those bushfire features. Let's not treat them as add-ons, particularly when we get to flame zone. Undeniably, bushfire shutters are expensive items. Let's not treat them as add-ons that, like the landscape, only have to be have to work in a fire event. Let's get them integrated into the design. Let them. Let's get them. You know, creating shade, creating insect protection, whatever it is. Uh, on a daily basis, so that they will be used more often than that once in an emergency, um, which is you know the same problem with bunkers. If you're relying on the landscape to protect you, if you're relying on a bunker to save you, if you're relying on a bushfire shutter that is only there for this one reason, then all three of those things are not likely to function when you want them to function, which is when you're freaking out and you just need the simplest solution for your immediate problem. So let's integrate these features into the actual house. So let's talk to our clients about building to a higher bell level rather than a lower one. And let's understand the costs obviously associated with that. From my own experience, building the Carry Firehouse, I found that 3% of the cost, the construction cost, could be directly attributed to building to bell 40 three percent and that and a hundred percent of that was in the elevated veranda because it had to be bell 40 40 rated decking on structural steel uh, joists and bearers so that three percent was just in one element so let's not get uh, distracted by a lot of the misinformation that's out there particularly in the bell levels that lead up to and include um, Bell 40. Flame zone okay. is different. Um, we're, we're now using uh, elements that have generally been tested through another standard. There's research and development costs that we're paying for when we use a, uh, a Bell flame zone shutter um, and, and, and so on. So, but again, if they're integrated, then the owners can see you know, the, that they're getting optimum kind of value for money. Wow, lots of really awesome ideas there. Thank you so much, Ian, for joining us and for sharing your amazing knowledge and experience with us on Hearing Architecture. Thank you very much, Daniel. This has been the first episode of Season 2 of Hearing Architecture. Thank you so much for listening. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. Thank you to our guests in this episode, Katarina Hendel, Kim Irons and Ian Weir for their contribution to the architecture profession and the community. The interviews in this episode were coordinated around Australia by Imagine Committee members Jamila Jahangiri, Kirsty Voles and Daniel Moore. Produced by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network, in collaboration with Open Creative Studio, written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. 
This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.